new series of sermons today. Um, this has been on my mind for really quite some time, and it wouldn't seem that it was ever quite yet the right time for it. Other things kept coming up. And let's follow for a moment. I'm only thinking back as far as the series on our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I didn't really notice this. Perhaps it was there, and I didn't recognize it uh, even before then. But in, in my thinking, uh, I go back that far. Maybe I'm just getting old and can't think beyond that. I don't know. But uh, there we began to look at the thought that we need to look back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and spent quite a little time on that. Uh, showing how they were faithful to God, how they feared God, and that's why God would have us look back to our fathers in the faith, where he began truly to work with Abraham as the first individual after Noah to begin to build a nation, a people, uh, that would represent him throughout the rest of history. Up until that time, it had only been the odd individual, and I don't mean odd in the sense of odd, but the unusual individual, let's say, uh, who would obey God. Enoch, Noah, there were not very many. And God never started anything that would be anything lasting until Abraham came along. And that's why we are told to turn our hearts to our fathers, and I see it on three levels, to our Father in heaven, to our spiritual fathers in the faith that go all the way back to Abraham and forward, and then uh, our own children and ourselves as fathers to have our hearts to each other instead of the bifurcated families that we have today in this nation and around the world. So on those three levels, uh, there is a lot to discuss. <clears throat> but there we began to see that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, feared and honored God. And that's the beginning of a build-up toward a climax that I think we are uh, coming upon here. After that, we had the series on fear. Uh, some of the fears that we have as human beings and of how human beings tend to fear all the wrong things. Rather than fearing God, who can solve all our problems, we tend to put our fears, our difficulties uh, into wasted emotion rather than emotion that can be built up to serve our God in heaven. So the, uh, the bottom line there is don't fear man, fear God. And I took a long time to get down to that basic point, but there's a lot to consider. And from there we went to the two trees to show that what happened in the Garden of Eden really began with breaking the first and great commandment by Satan who put himself above God, and then Adam and Eve carried that on under his influence and put themselves, their desires, their feelings ahead of God and broke the first and great commandments, or commandment, and that all the other commandments fall in line under that. So, really, it is idolatry and the breaking of the rest of the commandments that are represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gave us his entire law so that we might know good from evil, 
and pursue good that would lead toward the tree of life and avoid evil which brings death because of broken law. And then we saw the climax of that in Revelation where it talks about the law keepers will be offered the tree of life. So that is another series that comes in line with where I want to go today. Then we had the series on Egypt during the Days of Unleavened Bread and the thought that came from or with that or led to that was where is Egypt and prophecy? And we saw that Mitzrayim, uh, the, the tribe of, of, uh, of Ham or out of Ham, represents Egypt along with Canaan and the Canaanites who had a very close uh, relationship good and bad with Israel throughout Israel's history. And that God shows that really the big problem with Mitzrayim or Egypt or that line was the idolatry. Because God wiped out idolatry in the flood, did he not? By killing all mankind. That which Adam and Eve had started, God pretty much wiped out and only saved eight souls through the flood. So any bad influence or wrong thinking was pretty much wiped out because Noah was a righteous man and Noah's wife and children basically obeyed God. But it wasn't long after that and it happened to come through Ham uh, and Canaan and Nimrod that idolatry was again introduced in a big way and Nimrod was then the founder of idolatry this side of the flood. Adam founded idolatry in the garden, Adam and Eve. And God pretty much wiped it out, but then Nimrod started it up again big time. So all of our fables, all of our legends, all of our idolatry, all of our pagan symbolism basically goes back to Nimrod and his mother Semiramis. And it may have begun more really with her than with Nimrod himself, but certainly that mother and child combination created a great deal of evil on the face of the earth. So God looks upon Mitzrayim or that line of people not as a bad line of people, but it was through Nimrod in that racial line that came the idolatry that has spread to all nations today. And that is why God said that Mitzrayim or Egypt would never be a powerful country again, would never take a leadership role. It wasn't that they did not have the capacity to do that. Nimrod and Semiramis certainly did. They had such great leadership into idolatry that the, war, the whole world has followed ever since. Now the blame for the condition of things today goes more on Adam and Eve than it does on Nimrod and Semiramis because that was the first time that Satan had been able to influence mankind and drag him into idolatry, breaking the first and great commandment. But it started through Nimrod and Semiramis and has come down to all nations and all peoples today. And that is why the idolatry, not the people, not the race, but the idolatry that was started there has come down. And those people who showed great leadership at that time 
do not now show it on the face of the earth because of the turning from God into the idolatry and worship of Satan that commenced there after the flood. And that system is still with us today. We saw the films and how it is all through the monuments, the architecture, the layout of the Washington, D.C., has combined all the elements of all the pagan traditions that, became, that came through Nimrod and Semiramis and then were known by different names in different societies, but all the same gods going back to Satan. So Washington, D.C. is today a seat of Satan. It is a place that he controls. So you can see a pattern beginning to build here, can't you? Now let's go to the book of Malachi today. We're going to begin here because God has a complaint. And Malachi is a book that describes a complaint of God. It goes through quite a little description of his feelings and then shows how things will come out in the end. But it is not just an Old Testament book having to do with ancient Israel. We will see that, and we will see reflected in the New Testament here shortly, that the exact same message that Malachi delivered was also delivered by one Paul the Apostle. Uh, not in ex the exact same words, but almost. Uh, certainly the principles, the feelings, the things that Paul expressed are very much what Malachi had to say. So that was brought forward to the New Testament church, and the book of Malachi in itself comes out at the end of this age, as we shall clearly see. Anyway, let's start here, chapter 1 of Malachi, the burden of the word of the eternal to Israel by Malachi. Now what is a burden? It's a heavy weight, something you carry on your back that is uncomfortable, it is heavy, uh, that is in terms of a physical burden, but sometimes emotional burdens can be as heavy or heavier than a physical burden. I have myself said more than once through my life, I'd rather be beat physically than go through some of the things that I was going through emotionally. So emotion can be a very, very heavy burden at times upon us. And this was an emotional burden. God is not weighted down by a physical burden. He has all power and the earth is his footstool. So that doesn't bother him, but emotional burdens do bother God. So he instructed Malachi, just a human being like you and me, to bring this emotional problem that God is dealing with down to those people and ultimately to us, because this book is written ultimately to you and to me. It is the final burden before Christ returns to this earth and destroys mankind again, essentially, that is burdening God. I have loved you, says the Eternal. Now there's a statement. Now he, That's an interesting way to begin a burden. 
I have this emotional heaviness, God says, that is weighing me down and frustrating me. But the first thing that he inspires Malachi to write is, I have loved you, says the Eternal. Now this is written to Israel. So God says in so many words, I have loved you, Israel, says the Eternal. Yet you say, now here's my take on it, God says, I have loved you, but you say. In other words, you have a different opinion, a different approach. Now I went through Malachi in the Minor Prophets series and showed how it is dealing with first the church and secondarily then with physical Israel and the burden that is on physical Israel, and that still remains true uh, to this day, and I've seen nothing to indicate in any way that that is not a true analysis of the prophecies. But I want to approach this a little bit differently today with uh, a different view, a different point in mind, not entirely a different point, but uh, a little bit different shading or, or inference or uh, senior moment. Emphasis, I guess, will work. Yet you say, wherein have you loved us? Well, you say you love us, but how do you love us? How do we see that? How do we prove that? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Eternal? Yet I loved Jacob, Israel. So they asked the question, how have you loved us? He says, well, Jacob and Esau were brothers, and there were some things about Esau that I hated. I didn't like at all, and yet I loved Jacob. So he points at history and says, what did I do with Israel compared to what I did with Esau? Now, doesn't that show my love, how I brought Israel through this trouble, that trouble, and blessed them, gave them a promised land, and on and on and on? It brings all that to our minds when he says that, I would think. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now what did God hate about Esau? Was it that he was just another man? No, it was Esau's attitude. It was a rebellious uh, attitude where he had a chip on his shoulder because he felt that Jacob had been blessed in a way that he had not been, and therefore he was of a mind to do anything that he could that would show spite, vengeance, and all to Isaac and his mother, because uh, Jacob had stolen the birthright and mother had gotten involved in it. Now God intended him to have it. Uh, the sins that those two committed to accomplish it were not right, so I can't say that uh, Jacob was always right in everything he did either. But he did have a mind to obey Abraham and Isaac, his father, and showed respect and honor to them, even though he had some selfishness there that he and his mother misused and abused. But his overall life was one of honor and obedience to God and to his father and grandfather. Whereas Esau took the other way and became hateful, spiteful, jealous, and vengeful, and, in a word, rebellious. And rebellion 
is as the sin of witchcraft, and witchcraft is of Satan, the devil. So a rebellious attitude is a satanic avenue, avenue, attitude, pure and simple. When we have rebellion in our heart, we are allowing Satan's attitudes to encroach upon us and affect our lives. And that's what God did not like. It was idolatry, was it not? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob honored and served God in heaven. And Esau would not honor those men of God or God in heaven at all. He took a different route from God's laws, God's ways, his statutes and his ordinances, and rebelled against them. So God destroyed what he built. He laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom said, and Esau is Edom, as it says in several places, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the eternal of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the eternal has indignation forever. Now Edom says then, apart from God, God may have torn down our playhouse, my playhouse with his original attitude, but his people that followed him had the same attitude. We'll build it back. We'll show him. Now they've done that in this nation. Edomites are some of what we call Jews today. They say they're Jews and are not. And they have built back a government in Washington, D.C., which is anti-God, which is anti-Christ. They're trying to take God and Christ out of everything in this country. It started out that way. And they have built back a powerful, wealthy nation. Now that is disappearing rapidly, but it was built into that, wasn't it? And that's now being taken away. God says they'll build and I will destroy. And he is doing exactly that. Now he says that Esau will rise up. There's a prophecy about Esau back in Genesis 49, I think it was. Or no, it wasn't 49. Yeah, I think it was. It doesn't matter. It's back there. Uh, well, he said that they would laugh at the calamity of Israel in the end time. That they would be in the fat and the high places where the money is. Well, that's where they are, in Goldman Sachs and Wall Street and Washington, D.C. And they're all in there and controlling all of that. And now they are doing their thing, which is to try to destroy Israel utterly. If you've noticed, they are doing everything they can to bring other peoples into this nation and to pollute it and to destroy those who are of Semitic blood. That is their goal, and that is their purpose. That is why they are upset that a state like Arizona would pass laws uh, that would try to slow down the infringement of Arabs and Mexicans coming across our southern border. They don't like it. Uh, those in Washington are ridiculing it. 
And yet other states are beginning to consider passing the same law and others along that line. So there is a build-up here that is going to lead to the total collapse and demise of this nation because the people are beginning to rebel against Edom, their handlers. It's not just Edom there, but they are certainly in the seat of power and wealth. And God is going to tear it down. Now look at the church. The same thing happened. It had been built up, and I believe that it is and was God's work, his calling, his job, that which he had done. And then you had two men, basically, I think, that crept in unawares and got into positions of power and wealth in the church. Stanley Radar, Redder, and Joseph Dukach, who was apparently of Jewish and Edom, Edomite background, even though he was a was it a Ukrainian or something from over there? But they crept in and destroyed from within. And God blew it apart because of their evil influence. Now, God is the one that destroyed it. Now, if you think God isn't behind the destruction of this country today, you have another thing coming because he has a heavy burden. It is an idolatrous nation. It is an idolatrous church. That is why we have what we have here today. They shall call them the border of wickedness. In other words, Edom is where evil really starts, <laughs> to put it that way. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say. You're going to see this destruction. All right, we've seen it in the church and now, right in front of our eyes, we're seeing it happen to the nation. Terrible, terrible financial difficulties that are only going to get far, far worse. I don't care how much they say that there's something better coming and the recovery is here. No, it's not. Throw a few trillion dollars there and get a little bit of a temporary stimulus, but that's pretty well dissipated now, and we're going into worse and worse problems just as it's happening in Europe and in Japan and so on, the whole economic system is going to collapse. It's only a matter of time. And God says so in Zephaniah and other places. So your eyes shall see. You're going to see Edom build up in the church and in the nation, and you're going to see both destroyed, God says. And you'll say, the eternal will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now some are going to begin to say, if evil started with the border of Edom, then righteousness will begin at the border of Israel. Now is there going to be righteousness in the border of this nation in this day and age? No. Israel will be the nation that God begins to use to show where righteousness will begin in the millennium. But in the meantime... If righteousness is to begin on earth, it is going to have to begin within spiritual Israel, the church of God. That's the only option. It's the only place that it could even begin to start, correct? Those who have understanding of God, his ways, his laws, 
are the only ones that can be dependent upon in any way to begin to start to magnify God. Now, we have seen several series of sermons about those who have magnified God and glorified Him, obeyed Him, and those who have not. So there's quite a contrast we can look back on in these last few series. And here we sit today, and we are the only ones, along with other parts of the church of God, I'm not saying just us here exclusively, but those whom God has called out. I always have to throw that in lest people think we're talking about just this little group. I'm not, because God says there's a remnant scattered throughout the church who will be righteous, who will have the right attitude, and will come together to do God's will and fulfill his purposes here in the end time. So those people, I mean, we're here, we see each other, we know we're here, but we also know from Scripture that God has others scattered about the earth that he is going to draw together. So it isn't just you and me, it includes them. I hope we are included in it as individuals, I think, as a group. Yes, we are the ones who were to establish and start and give the opportunity. But God will bring others That remnant, then, is going to begin to be the border at which magnifying God begins. A son, verse 6, honors his father. A child grows up adoring, almost worshiping his father. I want to be like you, Dad. Songs have been made about it, uh, and we have seen it. I've seen my children, my boys, almost worship me above anything they understood and knew until they got a little older. But they started out that way. But a child, a son, will honor his father because he's bigger than me and he provides this and he provides that and he holds me and he tells me he loves me. You know, as a little child, as we grow bigger, and then we began to have other stuff funneled in our head, and, and it can mess with that image. And then as we get a little older, we see Dad isn't perfect either, and that messes with that image. But a son starts out honoring his father. You've all seen it with your children. And a servant, his master. A master, if you're a slave, controls everything in your life. And if you want favor, if you want happiness, if you want plenty to eat and a warm place to sleep, then you'd better honor your master. Because if you don't, you won't have those things. Now see, Egypt, or Mitzrayim, became the master of Israel, and they were the slaves. And as long as they did what Pharaoh said, they received good food, they were able to live in the better part of the land. Uh, things didn't go too badly for them. But what began to happen the moment they began to dishonor their master? Began to say, we want out of here. We want delivered. We're going to leave. Let us go out in the desert to worship our God. Well, the master didn't like that. 
and suddenly no straw to make bricks, and life got immeasurably tougher suddenly. And the whip came out more because they were dishonoring their master. As long as they honored, things went pretty well. They were still slaves, but they went fairly well. Now, it's that way in America today, where we as slaves of the federal government have gone along with that and honored it and taken their checks and done pretty well with them. But now we're beginning to see people around this nation begin to disagree with what's going on in Washington and disagree in many ways, and beginning to pass laws, legislation, to break away from that power, not to honor that master any longer. And you know what's going to happen? Life is going to get a whole lot tougher. Now, the same happened to us in the church. We began to see misuse and abuse, and we began to dishonor that master. And things got tough, and finally the church blew apart, and life has been very difficult for a lot of people that were in God's church and still are, but conditions got worse. We didn't have the nice, big, loving community and the warm everything that we had before. It got a lot worse. Okay, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And there is the title for this series. Where is my honor? You see, God opens this by saying, I've loved you. And you say, how? Well, look what I did with Jacob as opposed to what I've done with Esau. And I didn't like what Esau did, but I like what I'm going to see when there are those people on the face of the earth. And this is the end time now, as we'll see when we conclude this book. There is a people who will begin to magnify, to illuminate, to honor, to glorify my name, says the Eternal. So he started out, and he gets down to the real thing that is bothering him. Son honors his father, servant his master, where is my honor? God says. This is a major issue. It is probably the greatest issue that we could even begin to discuss. That's why it's a climax to these other series, because they dealt with Satan's idolatry, man's idolatry, man's disobedience and disregard for God, his ways, his laws, and the building of a totally different type of society than God would have. So mankind, from Adam and Eve down until today, have never really honored God with the exception of a few individuals through the Old Testament, and then a small church in the early New Testament times, which never quite died out, but almost, and now a few thousand people today who are remaining faithful to God, but in many, many respects do not honor him in the way that he wishes to be honored. And we shall see 
But I don't and you don't honor God in the way that he wants to be honored. Now, we honor him perhaps more than most. And this is not here to tell us how bad we are. That is not my object or my purpose. We hear that often enough. It is more, where is the honor of God? Where is the thing that is lacking that he wants the most? And if we can draw a picture of things that he has to say about himself and what he expects of us, then perhaps it will give us the vision, the purpose, the desire, the focus to give him the honor that he deserves and wants. Then it isn't a matter of how bad we are, but what we need to do to accomplish what God would have us do. You know, you can focus on how bad you are to the point you can't accomplish anything worthwhile. It can get discouraging and frustrating. At any time, any of us look at ourselves and we look at the Scripture, it can be discouraging because we lack so very, very much. So I want to, instead of put us down in that sense, inspire us, educate us on what God expects so that we can move forward in a way that will really accomplish his righteousness as opposed to just feeling bad about ourselves. Now certainly we all have to repent and we have wrong thoughts and attitudes every day. We think things we shouldn't think. We have impulses and desires we shouldn't give in to. We have all kinds of things wrong with us day in and day out, do, do we not? Things that we fight. And sometimes it seems like a pretty, pretty futile battle. It's difficult. So let's not, through this series, well, sir, we have to, and, and God opens this that way in some ways. We have to recognize the mud below, but let's also see the sky above. Because if you wallow in the mud below, you don't look up and see the sky above. And it's the sky above that, above that pulls you out of the mud below. That's the key. So, where is his honor? <clears throat> where is his fear? Says the eternal of hosts. And when he addresses himself as the eternal of hosts, he's saying, I am above all the hosts of mankind on this earth. I'm above all of you. I am the Lord of hosts, not only the host of man on the face of the earth, but the host of heaven, the angels, the 24 elders. He is the God of everything. So when he uses that term, he is saying in an all-encompassing way, you're dealing with the God of everything. It's a title. It's a powerful title. In other words, Christ said there in John 15, 16, 17 in different ways, I love you and I want us to be one and if you'll obey me, I'll be your friend. Now a friend uh, is a wonderful thing and being a friend with God would be the highest 
friendship or anything that could possibly be in a relationship. But friend does not carry the same power in that sense that Lord of hosts carries. See, that's a title as opposed to a friend relationship. So when God's making this announcement, he's not coming to you, let's say, as a personal friend, and let's be one and let's be close. He's coming to you as the ruler of everything and saying, here's what the God of all the universe has to say. So let's understand the context here in that light of how, what title he uses, in other words, when he addresses this issue. It is a big issue, or he would not approach it this way. O priests that despise my name. Now how can you be a priest of God and yet despise his name? Doesn't that seem counterproductive? I mean, you, you say, I worship God, I represent God, and yet you despise his name. And you say, how have we despised your name? We come to church every Sabbath and we talk about God and we try to do everything that would make God happy? What do you mean we've despised your name? How, how, where did you come to that conclusion? It would be our approach sometimes. So then he explains, You offer polluted bread upon my altar, and you say, Wherein have we polluted you? In that you say, The table of the eternal is contemptible. Now, you remember, in fact, we went through it one Passover, the different sacrifices, and I know it was dull in some respects and difficult to go through, and yet some of the things that we could derive from that is how God wanted the right kind, acceptable sacrifices. He did not want a lamb or a goat or any animal that was brought before him as a sacrifice to have blemishes, to have injuries, to have problems. He wanted them to be the very best of the flock because God is the great God and he deserves the very best. And every human being who's lived on this earth has been blemished, has been spotted by the world and by Satan, and is an imperfect sacrifice to bring before God. Emmanuel, the child, become the man, become the Savior, is the only one who has been perfect and without spot and without blemish. And his righteousness supersedes all of mankind's sin. It supersedes everything else that came before or since. And he is the sacrifice that was given for all mankind because of absolute perfection. But what do we bring before God, brethren? I'm sorry to say, when I go before God and offer what I am to Him, it's really less than it ought to be. I fall so far short of being as Christ was and is. So every one of us 
is, in that sense, contemptible before God. Not the kind of sacrifice he wants. Now, that's why he can say, it isn't what you are that it's the problem, that is the problem, it's what happens now that is the problem. See, he called the weak and the base of the world. He called sinners to righteousness. He called us, who were nothing in the weak of the world, to confound the wise. It isn't what we were when we began to understand that is the problem. It isn't our background. It isn't our past sins. That is not the problem. The problem is today we're still not what we ought to be, and that's why he says, to the overcomers will I grant to sit with me in my throne and offer them the tree of life. It's not what we've been. It's not what we are. It's what we become that is important to God. Because we all started out far, far less than what Christ was and is. And now on a daily basis, hopefully we're learning to walk as he walked, to think as he thought, to teach as he taught, to be like him, to walk as he walked, as it says. So what did we bring before him? We brought a table of polluted people. And we were lackadaisical about it. We did not honor him above everything. We put ourselves, our desires, our likes, our goals, our purposes ahead of God, and we gave him lip service. That's what it says about those who would get into a Laodicean attitude in Revelation 3. And he says he blew us out of his mouth like vomit because he could not stand that attitude. It was contemptible. It was not what it ought to be. It wasn't on fire for God. It wasn't where our goal and our purpose were focused on him. And he was the central and key part of our lives. He was there, and we came on Sabbath, but then we kind of did our own thing the rest of the week, and we gave him lip service. And that's not the kind of honor and glory that he wants. When you have a little child, you want it to say, Daddy, you want it to say, Mommy, Dada or Mama or however he starts. My daughter was just telling me recently the first thing that her latest child said was, Hey, thanks a lot. I want you to say Mama. <laughs> you know, it just, I don't know, the kid picked it up. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just using it as an anecdote. But we like to have the attention of our little children, and we're always trying to get their attention. We'll rattle things, we'll smile, we'll make funny faces at them, we'll do all kinds of things to get their attention. And we want that child to love us, we want it to like us, we want it to respond to us, we want it to smile and coo at us. We want the attention of that child. And we spend a great deal, we make, we make ourselves look silly sometimes with some of the things that we'll say and do with a little child to get its attention and focus. So I mean to an observer over here, and you're going through all these funny little noises you make to get that child's attention. 
Now that's the kind of attention God wants from us. And he does all kinds of things to attract that attention, and yet mankind has given their attention to Satan and to his ways, hasn't it? And we were a part of that. So now he wants us to change focus. He wants us to quit focusing on Satan and his ways and his world and his culture and his society and his cities and his genetically modified foods and everything terrible that Satan is doing to destroy us, to make us sick and afflicted. <coughs> he starts wars through man to kill us, and he is doing everything he can to destroy mankind. Now, those are the reasons God wants us to begin to focus on him. That's why he wants us to begin to produce our own food and to do it in a natural and proper way instead of these poisons that corporate America and the corporate world have foisted off on us. They are designed to destroy us. And they are. With diabetes, with heart trouble, with cancer, with fibromyalgia, with uh, rotten bones, with bad blood, uh, on and on it goes. They have done this out of greed, and Satan behind the scenes is doing it to destroy us. And we go along with it. We still go by all this junk in town, and we're giving in to Satan's way. And that's why I talked last week some about we need to become more self-sufficient, God-dependent, and begin to produce as much as we can under the present circumstances for ourselves to get away from the corporate doom that is clouding our future and quickly destroying us as a people. There are reasons God does these things. He made everything in the Garden of Eden good. It was good for life and for health. And mankind sinned and started going Satan's way. His life became much more difficult because he did not honor God. And then he went into all kinds of things since then, eating unclean foods, things he should not eat. And now we have learned to process them and to turn them into poisons. That we so happily go to the stores and they're all packaged so nice and they're poison sacks that we bring home and eat out of. And our health shows it. One-third of Americans will have diabetes before they die. One-third of Americans will have cancer before they die. One-third will have heart problems and heart attacks before they die. And that's currently what's going on. It is getting far, far worse month by month and year by year as the produce that they give us is more and more polluted and destroyed from the inside out and becoming more false and unreal and poisonous to us. Now that's kind of why we're having a meeting tonight is to help get us to the point that we can begin to actively do more. Now, many of us are trying and we're working at it, but we need to be more organized. We need to help each other more. We need to learn more so that we can accomplish these things 
that are going back to what God wants in people as opposed to the other direction that the whole world is going. So we'll be swimming upstream toward God while they're swimming further and further downstream in Satan's way. But we need to make an effort. God made everything very good, didn't he? He looked at all he had made and said it is very good. It was wonderful. And we have polluted and destroyed it ever since. Now he wants us to go the other direction. And you know what that does? It puts us at odds with the rest of the world. Because they are going down the sewer. They're going Satan's way, honoring him, and they will be destroyed. God says, I want a people who will begin to magnify my name from the border of Israel. It's going to start in Israel. It's not going to start somewhere else. I mean true Israel. Spiritual Israel, we'll see. Verse 8, And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the Eternal of hosts? You know, we, we honor, let's say, people prepare a dinner for the president or senators or whatever. Boy, they pull out all stops to make everything just right, be sure that the table is set right and, and the food is prepared in just a certain way and their likes and their dislikes are taken into account and they'll honor that office and that person in it. Well, it's getting worse, less and less of that, uh, but that's the way it's been. Now, what if you brought in something that was about half rotten and stunk and was not cooked right and threw it down on, let's say, the President of the United States' plate? What kind of reaction do you think you'd get there? You wouldn't do it, would you? No. Our governors, our people, our rulers, our leaders, oh, we're going to be careful they're well taken care of. But God, hey, I'm trying, Lord. Don't I come to church on Saturday? Well, what's all this pollution in the head? What's all this thing the hands do that aren't right? You know, we'll offer ourselves to God like we are. Is that what he wants? He says he doesn't hear sinners. We have to begin to repent and change and grow and head in the right direction, and then he begins to hear our prayers. But until we do that, he says he doesn't hear the prayer of sinners, those people who are living a life of sin and going that way. That means most of the population of the earth, God does not hear their prayers when they pray. Sometimes they think they got an answer to prayer. Well, even Satan's ministers can appear as angels of light. And they may have something good happen, and they think it came from God. No, it may have come directly from Satan, and they don't even know the difference. Because God does not deal with people who will not obey him, just the way that it is. Their prayers are not heard. Now, maybe if they're going through and beginning the process of repentance, he'll begin to hear them. But in the meantime, while they are set and determined to go their way, God will not hear, will not answer. Now, maybe God answered some of your prayers 
some of my prayers when we were little because he knew he was going to begin to work with us and we were calling out or reaching out to him to some degree. So I, I don't know that he never hears anything that someone says because he knows that individual and knows where he's headed with him. But what I'm saying here is a broad pattern is that if you're going the way of Satan and going the way of the world, God isn't listening. That's his attitude toward that. Now let's go, before we go further in Malachi, to Romans. Because it doesn't do any good to go here and talk about what I'm talking about to this point if it could be dismissed as, well, that's just Old Testament stuff for ancient Israel, doesn't have anything to do with today. Uh, we need to comprehend and understand, and I think probably here we mostly or all do, but others hear this or will hear this, and they need to understand that they're not off the hook because this is the modern-day church, and therefore anything in the New Testament has nothing to do with the Old Testament. People even in the church sometimes take that attitude. You know, the Protestant churches basically do away with the Old Testament. They operate only from the New Testament and then really only a small part of it. But they throw in Psalms and Proverbs because those are nice things that are said there for the most part. But even in the church sometimes we look at these things and don't look at them correctly. Now I want to pick this up in Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, Paul had that attitude, and God had that attitude. Didn't he say in the beginning of Malachi, I have loved you. That's why he started it out. <coughs> but my heart is very heavy. You know, you can really love somebody, can't you? And yet some of the things they do, some of the attitudes they have, the things they say make your heart heavy. It doesn't mean that you don't love them. Wife, husband, child, friend. <coughs> but sometimes they make your heart heavy because they hurt your emotions and your feelings. And we all do it. None of us are exempt. Anybody you know is sometimes, or sometimes has a heavy heart toward you. And you have a heavy heart toward all of your friends and relatives from time to time, or all the time, or whatever it is. But it, it does vary. But God unquestionably loves Israel, and yet he has a heavy heart because of the way we sometimes are. And that's what he's discussing here. So Paul starts out, I'm breaking into the context, but... He's, he makes a statement here that my will and my purpose and desire before God and my prayer to him is that they might be saved. Saved from what? From themselves, from this world, from Satan, from everything that is wrong. So Paul had a desire for Israel that he talked to God about. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, isn't this what we just read in Malachi, different words? We say we love you, you say you love us, but then we live according to other standards. 
we don't live up to the kind of honor that God wants. So we do have a zeal, a desire to serve God, and yet sometimes not according to knowledge. And that's what God was doing there, and Malachi was educating them. Yeah, you come to me and you say we worship you, but then why do you offer this bad stuff to me? These bad animals, these bad goats and sheep and bulls and doves and whatever. And that's the example he uses because those were the sacrifices that were daily brought to him in Malachi's day. We don't do that anymore because we have Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice, to hold up to God every day. And you know that's the only hope we have? Is that we have his perfect sacrifice to offer. If I offer myself as I am, I'm afraid God would puke. The only way he's willing to listen to what I have to say is if I come to him in the name of Christ or Emmanuel, whatever name we use here, in his name, in his sacrifice, in his perfection, I can come to God and ask for forgiveness so that God will hear my prayers. I cannot become, I am not, and cannot become good enough that God will hear my prayers. And you can't either. Unless we come in the name of the perfect sacrifice. That's what it all boils down to. He doesn't hear the rest of the world because they do not know Christ and they do not know God. He hears us because we come in the name, in the authority of Christ. We open our prayers that way. We address God as our Father in heaven and we close it in the name and the authority of Emmanuel or the Christ. Because that's the only way that we have access to God and that he will even hear us is through that perfect sacrifice. That's why we are enjoined to be like him, to think and act like him, because he has access to God. He has access to the God of all creation because of his perfection, his oneness and mind and attitude and emotion and feeling. He's just like God. And God answers to something that is like him. Don't birds of a feather flock together? We often use that in a derisory faction, uh, context because you see somebody who has a problem and they'll gravitate to somebody with the exact same problem and they can both cry in their beer together. But on a spiritual level, birds flock together the same way. God the Father has the closest relationship with anyone in the universe with his Son. And they flock together in righteousness. And he has called us to flock together with them to rule the entire universe, to inherit the earth, and have a world government under Christ through us the Mother, the 144,000, to rule the earth with a rod of iron and of love and mercy. <coughs> so that Satan can be bound, 
And those who are rebellious, as Esau were, was, can be burned up and forgotten, and there will be complete peace and harmony in the universe when we, we, when we become one as God is one. That's the whole goal and purpose he's working out here. If we can learn to glorify and honor God in that fashion and become like them, they'll share it all with us. But it is within human nature to be selfish and not to glorify him, but to glorify ourselves. Mankind in his best state is altogether vanity. You can be the best human being walking the earth. And where does it all come out? Dead. Whatever you were disappears, goes underground and rots. And that's the end of it, unless there is something more. And we are among the very few on this earth who have even been called to understand what we're talking about here today. Zeal of God is good. That's what he wants. Zeal, white, hot, fiery emotion toward God. But it needs to be according to knowledge. Because there are people who go about this earth talking about Jesus all the time. And how on fire they are for Jesus. But it is not according to knowledge. So they have a great zeal. But it goes nowhere because it's in disobedience and the law is done away in their eyes and they don't have to keep it and it means nothing and really less than nothing because it is total deception. It has nothing to do with true spiritual reality. So the zeal, the energy, the emotion for God can be at a high level, but if it's not according to knowledge, it doesn't mean anything. Now, we had a certain amount of the knowledge in the Worldwide Church of God, but then we dropped the emotion and the zeal that went with it and only gave lip service. And that is not what God is after. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, this is Paul writing. You can go back about four chapters to a Romans 7, where they try to say that God's law is done away, and you don't have to obey him. But what does Paul say here? For Christ is the end of the law, the purpose of the law, in other words, for righteousness to everyone that believes. So the law, if kept, leads to righteousness, to being like God. Keeping the first commandment, putting him above everything, is the biggest step in the right direction. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise, Say not in your heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what says it? 
The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Trust in God that he can take that which is nothing and turn it into something. That he can make us into God himself. He can accomplish that. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Emmanuel, and shall not believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It has to be living, active faith. Uh, I'll show you my faith by my works, Paul said, not just by saying these words. That isn't enough. You have to follow it up, not with just a zeal of words, but according to knowledge. goes on down in verse 12. He says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Now he's bringing this into the New Testament. He's showing that these people who said, We have Abraham to our father. We, you know, we're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're good because they were good. We're in God's favor because they were in God's favor. No, 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 no. Christ told the Pharisees who said the very same thing, You're of your father the devil. You don't even know who you worship. Now, it sounds harsh sometimes when I make the statement that these Protestants out here do not know God. They have no clue who he is. They worship Satan the devil. But that's what Christ said of those people who were supposedly the most righteous around, who looked to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Paul is saying here to the Roman church that just because you are a blood Israelite doesn't Cut it. It doesn't mean a thing. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile in terms of relationship with God. Whatever blood you have going through your veins is neither here nor there. It doesn't make a bit of difference. For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. Whether Jew whether Greek, whatever race you might be, if you call on God and turn to him, that's what matters to him. Just because you are an Israelite and you give lip service and say, I am of my father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Methodist church or the Lutheran church or whatever, then I'm of God. No. Do you follow God? Do you do what he says? If you don't, any Gentile on earth is as good as you are. Your Israelite blood doesn't mean squat. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? In other words, it doesn't do any good to claim to be Christian unless you're listening to God, paying attention to him. How shall they hear without a preacher? How did God's word, his burden, the weight he had on his shoulders, come to Israel and to us today? Through Malachi, just a human being. Yet God spoke that, had it written here, and if they had not had Malachi preaching it, or Isaiah preaching it, or whoever else that wrote the Bible then we wouldn't have it today. So God says, that's the way I work. How shall they preach except they be sent? A lot of people stand up and they just start preaching because they 
had this calling, whatever it was. But God doesn't honor that. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things or the gospel of God. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? says that right at the beginning of Isaiah 53, and then he goes on to talk about Christ and his sacrifice and what he did. So Isaiah said, I can write these things, but who's going to believe it? They don't believe it. I'm just wasting my time and energy. I think anyone who is trying to preach Christ and him crucified and resurrected and to try to get people to listen instead of give lip service, gets frustrated at times. You hear me once in a while say, why do I bother? People don't listen. They don't know anything about it. You're just beating the airwaves. It means nothing. Isaiah had that emotion. Lord God, who is going to believe this? And yet, Christ did come, didn't he? He did sacrifice. He didn't answer back, but went as a lamb to the slaughter. So Isaiah wrote those things about Christ and said, nobody's going to believe this. But it happened, didn't it? Other things Isaiah said are happening today as we sit here. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes hearing about God. Faith and trust and honor in God comes from hearing of God. And how do you do that? By hearing the word of God. That's what we're trying to do here, is get right into the word of God and talk about it, read it, expound it, not just spiritual-sounding analogies. You know, I don't tell many stories anymore. I don't tell many jokes anymore. I don't use many human analogies and parables and stuff anymore. I used to more early in the ministry because we were supposed to entertain and we were supposed to do this and that and all the stuff we were taught in speech class in Ambassador College. But I find, as time goes on, I am on safe ground and do my very best when I just read this. That is what is compelling. It is what is important. It is the Word of God, not some man's analogies and parables and spiritual things that he might dream up that sound so sweet. You know, like they do on the Protestant billboards out in front of their churches. They'll have something real sweet out there and something clever and whatever. Well, I suppose there's time for a certain amount of that. But this word is what really counts. Got to hear the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly, their sound went out into all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. This book has traveled a lot. But does anybody believe it? Do they follow it? Do they follow through? Is it just so many words and then we go ahead and do what we want to do? 
That's our nature. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. So Isaiah could write and preach and walk around naked and the things that God made him do. And the people who were not of Israel might come and say, Hey, Isaiah, that's interesting. I want to hear more. But what about Israel? But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and rebellious people. Chapter 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? Do you conclude then because Israel has been stiff-necked and rebellious and wanted to do their own thing and live their own way and seek their own pleasures, decide what is the best life for them apart from the word of God? Has God, as a result of that, cast away his people? God forbid for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Would you not, do you understand what the scripture says of Elijah, how he makes intercession to God against Israel? And then Elijah thought, man, there's nobody but me around. I'm the only one that knows the truth anymore. And God said, wait a minute, Elijah, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal which you don't even know about. And I'm wondering about today. Because Paul says, even so, verse 5, then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul realized that he could look around at the world and say, man, is anybody going to obey God? He even talked about the foolishness of preaching himself the same way Isaiah expressed it. He says, man, I talk, I travel, I walk, I... I preach, I write letters back to people, and it, it just seems so futile sometimes. And yet, even then, Paul said, God has saved a remnant according to the election of grace. We look at the world today, and there's upwards of six and a half billion people now, and probably less than, say, 150,000 have been called in this day and age from all nations around the world. And out of those called, I'm using that as a round figure, the church got up close to 150,000 and feast attendance and names on pages and whatever. But out of that, and that included unconverted mother-in-laws and children and everything else, only a 10% remnant will be faithful to God somewhere in the neighborhood of probably seven to 12,000, I would guess, based on scriptures, including this one. Out of six and a half billion people, that's not very many. <clears throat> he goes on down and talks about he is an apostle of the Gentiles in verse 13, and how Israel, who was the first fruit, should be holy, Verse 16, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And then he talks about the branches getting broken off of Israel because of disobedience and how God had grafted the Gentiles in because he said, maybe they'll listen. 
So he says there's, at this point, no difference between the Jew and the Greek. They're all of the tree of spiritual Israel. doesn't matter what the physical blood is, but the spiritual tree of Israel. They have been grafted into and have begun to produce fruit. You don't graft a branch of a different tree into a tree and then expect it to sit there and do nothing, do you? The reason people graft it in is to have it produce fruit. And that's why God has grafted the Gentiles into the church. And he said, it no, matter, no longer matters what blood you are, it's are you of the blood of Christ. The perfect sacrifice, that blood was shed. That's the only blood that matters anymore. Then he talks about how some of Israel were cut off. Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Israel is blinded until the Gentiles have every opportunity to come to God in the same way that God offered that to Israel in the beginning. So God has always loved Israel, and he is going to save Israel. But Israel has to be blinded, and not know until every opportunity has been given to everybody else on earth as well. And then he says in verse 26, Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, they shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant to them, when I shall take away their sins. And through the blood of Christ our sins can be taken away. So God is saying, yes, I've always loved Israel. I will continue to love Israel, and I will save Israel. But Israel has been stiff-necked and rebellious. They wouldn't listen, and I'm going to offer it to everybody on earth. Now, very few Israelites have responded in the end, and very few Gentiles have responded here in the end. But God has reserved for himself a spiritual tree of all bloods of mankind. Now, I beseech you, chapter 12, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is what God is saying through Malachi. You bring the contemptible, the deformed, the lame, the sick, the diseased before me, and that's not the sacrifice I'm after. I want maturity. I want perfection. I want those who are just like my son. He is the perfect sacrifice. And you, by accepting his way and his life and his broken, beaten, dead body to yourself can now come before me. But it is only reasonable that if he was the perfect sacrifice that you come and be like him and that you present your body as a living sacrifice. You don't have to die like he did. You don't have to die like the bulls and goats in the Old Testament did. You have to die inside. You have to kill your selfish, 
spirit, your vanity, your ego, your pride, your selfishness, and present yourself as a living sacrifice. And be not conformed to this world. Don't be like the world around you. Don't act like them, don't talk like them, don't walk like them, don't imbibe the things they imbibe. Be different. Don't be conformed. What is conformity? If you take a round pot and you put some clay in it and you smack it against it and rub it, then the shape of that clay conforms to that pot. Just like we can go out in this world and we can conform to them and be shaped and act and think like them. Don't do it, he says. Think like God. Be like Christ. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God and to his people and all people, ultimately. But be you transformed, not to where you look like the world, but transformed from that, made different from that, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <clears throat> For I say, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And then he begins to talk about how we're all parts of the body. And it doesn't matter what part we are, we're to conform and to be one, to become one, one body, one faith, one hope joined together in love and compassion and feeling. And when one of us hurts, we all hurt. That's the kind of sacrifice Christ was. When he saw all the sin and the degradation and the sickness that was in the world, he came down here to show that it is possible not to live the way human beings do. It is possible through God in heaven to be transformed and to become like God the Father and Christ are, to become one together and to be friends. He doesn't want to be just the Lord of hosts to you and me. He wants to become friends, but friends of a certain stripe. He only wants to be friends with us if we are like he is. And that's why we have been contemptible. We have used his name, we've come to his church, and yet we still are not the sacrifices we ought to be. So he's encouraging us here to remove the weight from his shoulders, to begin to honor him the way God wants to be honored. Where is my honor? We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We get offended so easily when somebody hurts our vanity or makes us feel unimportant, ugly, uh, dumb, stupid. Anything that is less than what we would like to be, it offends us when somebody hurts our pride, our feelings. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have feelings, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to get hurt, nor should we hurt others. 
It's a sin to give offense. It is a sin to take offense. But it is also human because we think of ourselves a little more highly than we ought to. And if you're looking down on me, there's something wrong with you, man. This is the way we are. So we have to become humble and subject to God and not think of ourselves that way, but present ourselves as a living sacrifice to others. It doesn't matter how ugly or stupid or uneducated or how we talk or any of that stuff. It's neither here nor there. It is the only thing that's really important is are we presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to God and each other and ultimately as a light to the rest of the world who are also our neighbors, to love them as we love ourselves and to be like God so we can be a light to the world. That's what it's all about. They tried to beat southern languages and all kinds of stuff out of us, ambassador, and maybe in some respects that was okay for the purpose of the ministry. But it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you were educated. It doesn't matter how stupid you've been or how sinful you've been. All that matters is do you put that aside and begin to serve God with all your heart and honor Him in everything you do and serve Him and each other and the world by being transformed to be like God. There is no greater honor than we can give to God than not to say, oh, I honor you, Lord, but to become like He is. That is the greatest honor. 